Hello, this is Curtis Edwards, Vice President of Investor Relations at Hudson Investing. Are you ready to start building your multifamily portfolio? Kent and I are excited to announce our newest deal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This 157-unit property offers a unique chance to acquire a B-class value-add property for just $120,000 per door. This is well below replacement costs. De-risking the deal even further is a favorable loan assumption with over six years remaining at 3.73% fixed. With 50 economic development projects underway and 70,000 jobs within a 20-minute drive, the South Carolina upstate region is primed for above-average job, population, and rent growth. Don't miss out on this exclusive deal. Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. Investors listen um, to podcasts or do reading or talking to brokers or industry professionals. Like You can figure out a lot of ways to enhance value in your market that might not be happening now. And like that's been one of the only drawbacks or pushbacks going into other markets is the management companies in those markets aren't used to certain things or fees that we can charge in Texas and they push back on it a lot. Welcome to Right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools, and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Hello, fellow investors. Welcome back to another episode of Ritter on Real Estate, where we teach you how to passively invest like a pro. Today, my guest is Sam Bates, and Sam is the founder and CEO of Bates Capital Group. Sam has been involved in over a $140 million in multifamily transactions and assets from acquisition to asset management, disposition, and everything in between. And he has he and his partners currently have 924 units in Texas and throughout the Southeast and roughly another 120 units in the pipeline for new development. So Sam's got a lot going on and we're excited to dig in today with him and learn a little bit more about what it is. Well, Sam, Kent, thank Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, Sam, just thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you and hopefully share some value with your listeners. Yeah, but let's let's get into it. Let's start right at the top, Sam. You know, you've uh, you obviously have built up a nice multifamily portfolio now, but you didn't start there. So tell us where you started and kind of how you got to be where you're at today. Yeah, definitely. Um, it started a long time ago and I was a finance major um, in undergrad and I actually thought about going and getting my master's in real estate. But at that time, I had no idea of what syndication was. I didn't honestly really even know what a real estate investor was. I just thought it was kind of the next progression and I was going to be a mortgage broker or a officer at a bank or something like that. And through, um, I guess the senior year to before i enrolled in grad school i had an internship with ubs out in los angeles uh, and i loved it and then they offered me a job as an investment analyst and since i'd graduated i just decided to stay out there and not come back and i was there for a couple years and really enjoyed the experience and um learned significantly more about the market the stock market and bond market than i had ever 
learned or dreamed of in um, undergrad, but I knew I always wanted to get a master's and my family's always been a big proponent on education. So I went back and got my master's. During that time, um, the market tanked and it, I saw clients, family members lose 30 to 50% of their portfolio essentially overnight. And I knew I didn't want to be a part of that or be able to raise money from investors and they lose it in a heartbeat. So I graduated with an MBA and a master's in personal financial planning. And I started consulting um, in Dallas and I was at a few consulting firms and going from an investment analyst where I was talking on the phone significantly, doing some research, but um, it was research I loved to going and researching tax laws and oil and gas equipment for 12, 14 hours a day sometimes. It just was not what I envisioned a career to be. So I kind of by a lucky intervention between a guy, I took my TV to get repaired and we started talking and he found out I had a finance background. He started telling me about real estate and this investment group in Dallas. So I went and looked at it. Um, and I first was a limited partner in a couple of deals. Um, and then I did single family from 2010 to 13 or 14 and realized you couldn't scale. And I, I did great on the single family returns, probably even better than the multifamily since I was buying them. It's so, I mean, I was buying three bed, two baths for under a hundred thousand, completely rehabbed. Um, but I just knew you couldn't scale. So in 14, I started looking to buy small multifamilies. Uh, and from 14 to about mid 15 or 16, I just, we weren't getting anything. I had a couple of brokers tell me they didn't trust me since I was young. They didn't trust that I could close. Um, and after banging my head against the wall for a while, I reached out to a guy who had been in construction for about 20 years. And then another person um, that I worked with at a consulting firm and we um, came together and built a 60 unit apartment complex and then 10,000 square feet of retail space. And it's kind of went from there. Wow, that's a heck of a start. You, you just started right out building from the ground up, huh? Yeah, we, since I partnered with a, guy who had been in the business for 20 years we had I had a lot of um surety that he's going to be able to perform like I still wouldn't take on a development project by myself there's just so many nuances that I don't feel comfortable with from the construction aspect or I don't have the teams in place to be able to do it but I think partnerships are critical in real estate and they've exponentially um that they, they've increase my growth rate exponentially. And um, if you can partner with the right people, the guys or girls that have the same beliefs, have same work ethic, kind of have your same values and vision, I think they're great. And um, the, the first one was a success and we just decided to continue going down that path. And how many units have you developed now? Um, I don't know that off the top of my head, but um, out of the 13 GP projects, we've done seven developments, um, but one was a lot development that we took raw land and turned it into a residential uh, subdivision. One was the development that we just did the horizontal construction on and we're selling the land to a REIT for them to build. Um, we, so 
probably four to 500 of the units are um, from the development perspective. Oh, gotcha. That's awesome. So you're, you're kind of 50, 50 in your portfolio of what you've developed versus what you've acquired. Yeah, it's great because I mean, acquisitions, you can, you can buy them in really 60 to 90 days and you can start getting that cash flow for investors almost immediately or within six months to close or whatnot. Um, and development's a lot different. I mean, depending on where you buy the land at and how it's zoned will depend on how long you have to go through the zoning process. Um, and I mean, one deal, it took us almost three years to get through planning and zoning. So we were doing that without any investors. And then once we got it approved by the city, we brought in investors and then the construction period can take two to, I mean, 15 months to lately, it's taken a lot longer just because the supply chain issues, the shortages and materials and labor. Um, like we have one project we'll be finishing that's been almost a three year build process just because COVID and everything that slowed it, the build process down. Gotcha. Well, that's a, that's a really interesting perspective to having both sides like that. And I mean, how do you see, you, you talked a little bit about, you know, obviously cash flow, no cash flow, but how do the return profiles differ on, on the deals you're doing from a acquisition side to, to a development side? The return, generally. the returns differ greatly. I mean, especially if you get uh, acquisition from a broker, which realistically, if you get a hundred plus unit acquisition, it's going to come from a broker and you have a lot of competition. So um, the acquisitions we've, we projected 15 to maybe 18% IRR. And luckily on the ones we've exited or about to exit, we've done significantly better than that. Um, like one we have listed where we'll probably return the investors a 32 to 35% IRR. Um, but I don't think that's repeatable, especially now since cap rates have compressed and it's just that much more competition. Um, but on the development side, we have a deal listed where we'll 3X the investor money in about 27 months. Um, the retail deal that we developed, we provided 41% RR in 16 months. Um, the land development, we the equity multiple was about 2.5 and roughly three years. So the returns are significantly better, um, but there's just more uncertainties and some people just don't wanna add that risk into their portfolio. Some people love it and they're more entrepreneurial minded or they have a larger nest egg where they can take that risk. But some of our investors, they're essentially coupon clippers and they want that consistent cash flow because they live on it to either pay their bills or retirement. And so the risk profiles of the different investors is critical to actually figure out what their risk profile is and let them know the differences because um, it does take a different investor that wants to invest in a development than it might on an acquisition. Yeah, I think you made a really good point there. Cause if they're, if the goals aren't aligned from the beginning, because the investors maybe don't really understand, right. All the aspects of it, then you're not setting yourself up or them for success. Right. And that's going to be a troubled relationship through the process when they're in six months into a development deal and they're calling you asking when they're, when they're going to get their distribution. Right. And luckily we've done a really good job of explaining the, the timing and the risk and 
different things, but in developments, you just don't know. Like one of the developments, the city told us we were gonna have the city pay for a road that was literally six feet and they backed out of that. So we had to bring an additional 500,000 to, to the development. And it's just, there's risk or uncertainties that you can't plan for. And like, luckily most of our investors have been happy. There's been one in particular referral we had that she, it would have been a lot better if she would have invested in an acquisition than development. I, mm -hmm. I don't think she understood the timeline. So we've had to teach and coach her a lot more than we have with the other investors, just because she was new to real estate and didn't exactly know what all could transpire in a development. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I can imagine that that, that comes up pretty often. Well, so as you look to, as you're looking to move forward, uh, where are you focusing your time on now? Is it development? Is it acquisition? Is it a blend of both? And kind of how does that work? Right now it's more acquisitions. Um, once lumber prices shot up, labor shortages, and, and also other materials, like on one development, we waited five months for windows. Um, so it, it, it puts a kink in your plans and your performance. And um, right now, at least I'm focused more on acquisitions. I know the returns can be better on development, but I just kind of want to see where the supply change shakes out. Um, and the land over the last couple of years in Dallas, Fort Worth, it, it's skyrocketed. So it's harder to make deals work or pencil. Um, and with material increases and jumps, I mean, we were building developments for, and granted, these are secondary cities at DFW. So we're getting the land really cheap, but we're building them for $80 a square foot on some of them. Some of them we could basically build a unit and these are large units for a hundred, 105,000. The last deal we underwrote that we're looking and we still might develop it. We're at 135, 140 in cost per unit. So, um, the, the cost has just completely changed and that's going to definitely hurt the returns. Um, so. And are those kind of B class suburban like garden style? Is that what you're building? They're, their garden style, some we've done really well in on their essentially fourplexes, but they're nice townhome looking fourplexes, um, two story, three bed, two bath. Um, but the the apartments are definitely garden style. I would say they're they're a class for their area, but if you put them in uptown Dallas or a downtown of a major metro, they'd probably be a B plus A minus. But we import a lot of the materials from Asia. So we have nice vinyl plank flooring. We have quartz countertops, um, custom cabinets. It's just, we don't have all the amenities that somebody would expect in an urban location now. Gotcha, gotcha. So yeah, so, so prices have gone up anywhere from sounds like 30 to 40%. It, yeah, exactly. And, and some, some of the materials, maybe even more than that. Um, but, and one of the issues we're finding and not even just developments, but from our acquisitions is labor with all the stimulus and the government funding, it's hard to keep good qualified people. Like in one of our properties, we've went through probably five or six maintenance guys in the, since COVID's happened because yeah. they're collecting more money than yeah. they, they're making or they're collecting just a little bit under what they're making. So it makes sense to them to work 40 hours a week. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, 
I was going to, yeah, I'm glad you say maintenance because that was the first thing that popped into my head too, because I know that just, you know, in a lot of the cities that we're investing in, just in general in a city, I mean, maintenance people are a premium. And so, you know, you come down to your individual apartment, it's difficult to find folks. And I know that, uh, you know, the, the past, the company I worked for, I've had several uh, maintenance positions open for quite a while. It seems like it's a tough, tough job to fill right now. It makes me wonder if that model has to change. Uh, the model of having just the, the maintenance guy dedicated to the apartment, you know, that's on call and, and doing all the work. It seems like that's, uh, it's not sustainable anymore. Like you said, folks are making more money going other places or, yeah, or just staying I, home based on the, the government checks. But, but even going in, in what I've seen more is people going and getting a job with HVAC or, or plumbing I, or specializing, you know, and you can make quite a bit more. Yeah, and for our lead maintenance at all of our properties, we require them to be HVAC certified. And to your point, like if they are HVAC certified, they can work for HVAC contractor and make significantly more money. So I think there might be a shift in that. Obviously, I don't want that to happen because I think it's just going to drive up uh, maintenance or repair costs. But it could definitely be something that happens in the next decade. I know one of our properties, we've basically just had to go to a um, staffing agency and get labor um, or maintenance guys from there because the people we were hiring, they were leaving after a week or two and there wasn't enough of a market pool to bring in those people. But that property was in a smaller market of 90,000 or so. So in your larger markets, I think you're going to have a lot bigger base and hopefully a bigger base to choose from. Mm-hmm. And so that's a good segue into markets because I wanted to ask you, you know, what are the markets that that you guys are actively looking in right now? And and maybe uh, you can give us some examples of actual markets, but then like just criteria wise, what what is it that helps you define a market? My thought process over the last five or six years has honestly changed. Um, We've had a lot of success in secondary and tertiary markets, and I I'm still considering steps, especially developing there, but I don't know if I'd buy there again, um, just because cap rates have compressed so much that it's, I would much rather buy in a primary market at a four cap or three and a half cap versus buying a secondary market of four and a half or five cap. Um, and maybe that cap rate's a little bit low, but I mean, I'm seeing deals in Austin trade under three. so. I think it's going to continue and any market we look in, um, I, I make sure there's population growth, there's job growth and rent growth. Those are kind of three primary drivers. And then I'll look at median household income and it depends on if it's an acquisition or versus development. And it depends on the class. Like we have, I mean, our oldest property right now is 1972. Our newest acquisition is a 2017. And then from a development perspective, we have 2020 and 2021. So depending on the asset class will depend on what median income I require um, because the rents are going to vary. And then um, I, I think luckily we have, we're blessed to be in Texas or I'm blessed to be in Texas and everybody's moving here. So uh, I, I've looked at DFW, Houston, Austin, really since 14 and just have never been able to get a deal. I mean, hindsight's always 2020. So it, 
each time I was offering less than what it took to buy it, but, um, and maybe that'll continue. And that's honestly why we went to the Southeast and um, we have a deal right South in Memphis, Tennessee, that's, it's actually in Mississippi, but it's been phenomenal. Um, we have a deal in a suburb of Atlanta that we closed in January. And I was looking at our unit mix and rents last Friday, and we have raised rents on average $269. Um, and then the last acquisition was in a, a suburb of Orlando. So I'm still looking at cities that have a lot of growth and the economic drivers behind them, but I've luckily found a couple of good property managers that are either regional or nationwide. And I, if they're in a market and I believe in the market, I have faith in them to go in and execute a business plan that we've created. No, it's great to find those partnerships. I was, I was going to ask, and maybe that's the answer of going into these different markets. You're obviously in Texas. I know you have a few partners, but you can't be boots on the ground everywhere. How do you, how do you enter a new market and, and how do you manage from afar? Early on, it was honestly trial and error. Um, the first property we built was five hours away from us. And we, it was about 60 minutes Northwest of San Antonio in a market that is median household income is extremely high. It's a retirement community. And there's probably average house, uh, median house values, 700, 800,000. So you have a lot of affluent people, then you have a lot of um, very low end working class, like blue collar type apartments, but there's absolutely zero apartments built within the last 10 years. And we did some market studies and we realized there's a great demand for it. So we built it and we went through two property managers before we found a third one that made sense to us. Um, and one of the property managers was actually an investor of ours and he was managing from Dallas and he just didn't have the right people in place. So I was going down there. I'm more of the boots on the ground operations um, after we raised the funds and I was going down there a significant amount of time. And I was like, this cannot continue to happen. Um, so we vet the property managers a lot more. Um, and now I've worked with probably eight property managers. They all have strengths, they all have weaknesses. Um, but I've learned if I can actually interview the on-site staff, that's going to help tremendously because we've had third-party managers that we've used at one location and they've done phenomenal and another location they didn't. And it boiled basically down to the on-site staff in the regional. And um, even though they, uh, they managed a billion dollars of assets and claimed that their systems were streamlined, I quickly realized that was not the case. <laughs> yeah, it, it's never as pretty when you see how the sausage is made, right? Exactly. But I, I think it's a great point you just brought up to interview the on-site staff because you're right. It, it's so dependent on the individuals on site. I mean, you can have all the good systems in the world, but it comes down to the people at the end of the day. It, it is. And like one of the biggest mistakes I've made is I trusted in the third party management company and I didn't go with my gut because the first time I met the on-site person, I knew she wasn't a fit for the demographic. And I was like, well, I trust, I trust the manager to make the right decision on their hiring. And at that point, we had never interviewed anybody, but um, it was apparent, it was quickly apparent that she wasn't the right fit. And I waited a few months, probably too long to fire 
and I, I asked the regional to fire her and she wouldn't. So we had to get rid of the third party company in general, just and replace them with somebody else that would listen to what we needed to execute the business plan. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's critical. So you, you talked about the shifting cap rates a little bit and you guys have seen that happen uh, more than most in Texas, right? It's kind of happening everywhere, but I mean, Texas has been kind of one of the epicenters of it. So I'm curious, how has that changed your strategy of just going from a couple of years ago to like a five cap to now, like you said, three, three caps. I mean, how do you alter strategy to account for that? That's a great question. And it's, it's really hard. I know if you want a deal that's marketed right now, you have to be somewhat aggressive. Like everybody says they underwrite conservatively and you definitely do need to underwrite conservatively, but like previously we were expanding our uh, exit cap 10 basis points a, a per year or maybe even 20. So sometimes we were exiting at a seven cap when we were buying a six cap. And we've definitely changed that in underwriting where um, we'll, Maybe it'll be a 10 basis point spread, but even then, realistically, we won't get the deal if, if that's the case. And it kind of depends on the market. Um, and now I'm focused more, since I have a track record and brokers can trust that I can close, I'm focused on more of the primary markets. So um, I, I think in the areas we're looking in, cap rates are going to stay the same or potentially even compress more. And I've Talk to a lot of people and a lot of veterans that have been in the industry since the 80s and 90s, and that's their fill as well. And um, over the last five to 10 years, I mean, with social media, with technology, um, and a lot of different factors, but it's real estate now, investing in syndications is mainstream. Where when I invested in my first deal as a limited partner, I don't think many people had even heard of what a syndication was. Like I invested with I'd been in the business for 15 years and it was quote unquote his first like PPM and that syndication process that he had ever done. What year was that? It was 2009. Oh yeah. So, that was, that was early on. Yeah. So it's, it's just become so commonplace and interest rates are so low across the, the world and you have capital coming in from all different asset classes, industries, other nations that, even if interest rates increase, I, I've read where interest rates aren't always correlated with cap rates. And I think cap rates could just stay compressed where they are, maybe even decrease. I'm not putting that in my underwriting, but I think it, it's a good bet that they're going to stay that way. So maybe we can keep the underwriting cap or the reversion cap rate the same as the entrance cap rate on a stabilized deal and maybe be a little less aggressive in some other areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's an interesting conflict, right? Because like you said, everybody wants to say they underwrite conservatively. Yeah. The, the general rule, rule of thumb forever has been kind of 10 basis points increase a year right, for every year you hold it, right? But the, that that's difficult for a couple of reasons, right? One is, well, well that's not the reality of what's played out in the last, uh, I don't know, close to probably 10 years. And then also if everybody's doing it, then, then how do you win the deal? If you're, if you're doing what everybody else is doing, right? Uh, yeah. Like you said, you have to be willing to be a little more aggressive in certain areas. It seems on those on market competitive deals. Right. And, and 
like we have a deal under contract now in East Dallas that is complete off market, direct to seller. And we're a lot um, more conservative in our projections. And I think it's going to be a, a grand slam, maybe one of the best deals we've ever gotten, but it was truly off market. And if it would have been grabbed up by a brokerage shop, we probably wouldn't have got it. Um, yeah. Or if we did, it would be at a significantly higher price. Yeah. I mean, it's a, uh, it is interesting. And, uh, you know, we just had a, a situation where we had a, a deal under an LOI. Um, there was direct to seller strategy, uh, deal, deal was under LOI and, uh, a broker swooped in and, and told the guy that, that he could get him, uh, you know, about do quick math, about 18% more than, uh, than what we were offering. And, uh, and, and the guy dropped to, and I, and we were stretching it at that number, honestly. I mean, we were stretching our underwriting to, to get to the guy's number to, to try to take it down and avoid him going to market. But, and it was, I mean, it's just easier to know the numbers. It was like, we were at 5.2 and then, uh, a broker came in and told him he'd get him six for it. And so the guy, the guy backed out of our LOI and, and now he's taking it to market. And I don't know, somebody might pay 6 million for it. Uh, you know, I didn't think it was worth more than 5.2. But it's just to your point of kind of, you know, the difference between an off market deal and an on market deal, you know, I'm sure somebody will pay six, somebody might pay six, two for it. We'll, yeah, yeah. We'll have to see. I, before we jumped on the call, we were kind of talking and I was in Charlotte the last couple of days looking at deals and there's a deal that it's in the core plus area, great location for Charlotte. And they initially whispered 290 a door. Now they're saying 310 a door, which it's a 180, maybe I shouldn't say the exact unit, but it's a larger. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it significantly increased the purchase price and I guarantee somebody's going to pay that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is interesting. So, so when you're, so, so in that market uh, or in a market where, where you're operating with three caps, let's say, uh, how about from a, a value add standpoint, from like a renovation scope standpoint, ha has your, has that changed knowing that, you know, for every dollar you can, you can tweak the NOI, you, you can, you know, you can even increase the, uh, the valuation that much more. Are you doing more, more because of that? Are you doing less because it's more expensive? Like how, how has that changed the strategy? Well, luckily we haven't bought anything in a three cap market. <laughs> okay. Um, like the lowest, uh, purchase we've done is a four cap but some of the markets we're looking at have got to the three cap. Yeah. Um, but still in, in a lower cap rate environment, how does that adjust? Question. Um, I focus a lot on mismanaged operations and how the previous owner, property manager, whoever's managing the asset, what they've done. Um, and then obviously we want to go in and be able to renovate it to another level. That's a, a comp in the market. Um, so all the assets we've bought, we've always went in and done renovations. It kind of depends on to what level, um, like this last acquisition was built in 17. And for some reason, the developer built it like a B-class property, even though it's in an A-class 90 plus thousand median household income area. Um, so we're going in and putting in granite, or, or sorry, uh, quartz counters, stainless steel appliances, just anything a young professional would expect when they're paying 1500 a month for one bedroom. Um, but I, I think 
anybody can do that, but where we find value is just from mismanaged operations. And partly you could say not raising rents is mismanagement, but um, the last really three deals I've bought, the on-site managers were absolutely horrible. And um, like in Memphis, granted we've owned it now for a little over two years, but we've raised rents with rubs, $350. Um, in Atlanta, we've been able to raise them $270 in six months, essentially. And we're in the Florida deal, we've already increased lease renewals by $200 on average, or $220 or so. So there is still um, opportunities, even in the low cap rate environment, it's just harder to find them. And I mean, the deal in Atlanta was off market. The deal in Orlando, we preempted before it could, the bin process could get up, get bought up. And the Mississippi deal, we weren't the highest bidder. And they, the person who got the LOI accepted, they couldn't figure out a PSA. So the broker came back to us and asked us, and we submitted an offer. We got accepted, but it was a little bit lower than what we initially submitted. So I feel like we've been very successful in getting deals without having a ton of competition, but that's why in three years, I've only bought three deals. So yeah. Um, you have to be selective. Yeah, absolutely. And just going back to what you were saying about uh, mismanagement, I mean, what are, be more specific, what are you seeing on these? Like when you look at a deal from the outside, what's something that says to you, oh man, I know there's opportunity here. If you're underwriting, I know some groups that have analysts um, and they can do this, but if you're starting off and just underwriting all the deals you get, and maybe um, now that I'm in a lot of markets, I can be underwriting or have my analysts underwrite a hundred deals a month. And if you aren't digging deep into it, you won't see it. But like when you go on property tours, you can ask a lot of questions. Um, one of the biggest things I found value from is uh, revenue management systems. And they can be great if you have somebody that knows how to input the data, but it's garbage in, garbage out. And like one of the properties we bought, used, the previous owner used a revenue management system. And on the rent roll, they had the two bedrooms with a $5 difference in some of the three bedroom units. And it just makes no sense why you'd charge $5 more for a three bedroom versus the two bedroom. Um, one of the properties, we bought the Mississippi property, we bought from a hotel operator who had a small multifamily portfolio and they just didn't know how to operate it. Like they were paying literally all the utilities for the residents. Like they even were paying cable and internet for the residents with no bill back, nothing. Um, so those are two big areas. Um, I think going in and I don't know how many properties I've toured, but you can definitely tell if the owner slash manager doesn't take care of the property, your tenants don't take care of it. I think there's just simple things you can make a property look nice and clean. And if you have pride ownership, the tenants are more than likely gonna have pride ownership. And um, this East Dallas property we have under contract, I mean, we're, the owner is a, he's owned it for 30 years, but he's a complete slumlord. He bought it, I'm sure, for, I don't know, five, 10,000 a unit. He does all the repairs, he does everything. 
and he's worked really hard, but you can tell he's just doing whatever he can to get by. And you can tell that from the tenants that are in place. Like we're going to have to go in and remove probably a hundred percent of the tenants. <laughs> um, I mean, <laughs> there's stripper poles in some of the units. There's, um, I mean, some are meth units. You can walk in and just completely tell that a meth addict's lived there for years. So um, just being on site, asking pertinent questions, I think is a great way to tell how operations are running. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a couple of things you said. One is just the revenue management system, or it sounds like just a, just pricing disparities among the units, right? You, you see, there's not a, a delta between twos and threes. You see, I mean, you even see crazy stuff sometimes like twos that were running more than threes or vice versa. So just kind of looking at the rent prices and saying, do these make sense? And and you said actually getting like into the rent roll and seeing what's in the rent roll, right? Because I think that can be very telling on on just the different prices you see and kind of how, how they operate. Then uh, rubs or just utility billbacks, right? So that's a that's a huge opportunity if, if folks aren't billing back utilities. I mean, we have a couple properties under contract right now where it's opportunities on, on both of them to just start, just get the utilities off of uh, the property's books and, and get them back to the residents. And, and that's a huge expense savings, right? Yeah, uh, it, it is. Yeah, and lastly, you said just pride of ownership, right? Of, of just being able to, just evaluate, is there that pride of ownership? Is the property clean? Are people taking care of it? And um, likely there could be easy upside there and just better maintaining the property, right? And, and getting the right, and in doing that, you'll you'll get the right tenant in there as well. Yeah, exactly. And all markets are not created equally. Um, luckily, I'm in Texas and a lot of our properties are in Texas. And I feel like owners in Texas are, cutthro are cutthroat. And you can see, just from underwriting deals, you can see a lot of things from an operational standpoint that other owners do, and you can learn from it. And now I've been in real estate for 11 or 12 years. So I've read a lot, listened to a lot of podcasts and my knowledge base has grown significantly since even five years ago. I mean, I look at stuff, my underwriting from five years ago and I laugh at it, but if investors listen, um, to podcast or do reading or talking to brokers or industry professionals, like you can figure out a lot of ways to enhance value in your market that might not be happening now. And like, that's been one of the only drawbacks or pushbacks going into other markets is the management companies in those markets aren't used to certain things or fees that we can charge in Texas and they push back on a lot. Like um, one property manager, they managed two of our assets and we could easily implement cable and internet package for our residents. They benefit from it. We benefit from it. And we've been going back and forth for literally four months on it. And the property manager keeps pushing back on us um, because they just don't understand the concept. Interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's a no brainer for me. It, exactly. Yeah. And I was talking to a guy that's in Iowa and just some of the things that they do and what he does is like, it, it just blows my mind. But he says the tenants, they don't expect anything more. So they'll pay maximum value for a unit that is basically in the eighties or seventies in Texas, but he's like, they're happy with that in Iowa. So 
that's it's interesting uh, to learn though learn learn how people are doing it in different places and and it's different I, in every city right i know and i told him you should do this and that and that and he's like i've tried it on other properties and you just don't get the rent bump yeah would in specific markets yeah that that's an important lesson too is you know don't over improve it and do things just to do them make sure that that there's going to be a return and you're going to be able to increase the rents right exactly i mean yeah. roi is by far the most important factor in decisions that should be made so if you can't get a return on investment you probably shouldn't do that yeah absolutely well, Sam, it's been so much fun having you here today and uh, and getting into some of the, the nitty gritty with you. And I think it's been really, really uh, valuable to the folks listening and the, up their game on both how to look at deals and uh, or how to evaluate deals uh, that they may be looking to invest in. And now before I let you go, I, I want to take you through our keys to success round. There's four questions I want to ask you. And uh, the first one is, so put your investor hat on, your passive investor hat. If you could only ask your deal sponsor one question, what would that question be? That's a very good question. And it's hard to ask just one question, but I think outside of anything, I would want to know why is a lead sponsor or she's a lead sponsor. And I think from that question, it can shed a lot of light into who they are as a person. And then obviously that will create more questions, but if somebody's doing it just to make money or if somebody's doing it just to grow their unit count to 40,000 or 5,000, 10,000, whatever, I probably don't want to be investing with that person. What are you looking for in that answer? Um, I think th there's a lot of things and it, it helps possibly know why they're investing in real estate. Um, what their worldview is. I mean, from that one specific question, it might be hard to get down into the nitty gritty, but um, how they determine success, what they think a successful investment is, um, there's a lot of things that could stem from that one question. And I mean, another great question I think is share how you've experienced or share your failures and how you've overcome that. I mean, because multifamily and real estate in general isn't going to go to 100% plan. Mm -hmm. So like life and depend on how you can mitigate or how you respond to failures, I think is paramount. And I know from my some of my largest failures is the most growth that's occurred in my life. And I, I hope other people that have went through failures say can say the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great perspective. So next question is, what are you most proud of in your career? I think I'm most proud of just being able to provide, well, I have a lot of goals in real estate and that's why I'm investing in syndicating. And I look at each investment or development is helping essentially three shareholders and that's the tenants, the city that we're investing in and then the investors. And one of my goals is to make as many millionaires through real estate investing as possible. And um, every property we go into, we make better for the tenant. We make, granted we do increase rents, but we make their lives better, their place of living. We improve it, make it cleaner, create community within the apartment. And then the city, like this, 
one that we have in East Dallas, this is a complete eyesore and we're going to completely revolutionize it. And it's going to be something that I hope city officials are happy with. And it's going to increase tax base. It's going to increase a lot of revenue for even the city that um, I'm, I'm just thankful that I've been able to do it in multiple locations, pour into people in multiple ways and just continue to grow and hopefully impact more people um, throughout this process. Yeah, that's awesome. You're, you're making a big change through what you're doing. And, and I agree with you. I think there is a positive social impact to, to what we do and you're improving, you know, making clean, you know, relatively affordable housing. And, right. uh, you know, a lot of people don't have that option. Like you said, the people that are living in that guy's building out in uh, East Dallas right now, you know, in those poor conditions and you come in and, and improve it. And yeah, that's awesome. So what is a book that everybody should read? I've, I've read probably 150 books in the last two to three years. So there's a lot I could recommend. And maybe it's just because it's top of mind since I'm reading it right now. But it's a book called Who, Not Why. And it's simple concepts, but it's been kind of earth shattering to me. And throughout my career, I've been very hands on. And I've, I've worked a lot of hours over the last 12 or 13 years, and I've realized I need to out, start outsourcing a lot of my responsibilities and activities. And I've already hired a couple people to help do that. Um, but this book is just great on how to basically remove yourself from the business or remove yourself from whatever you're doing to help it run as a true business and not be the sole person responsible for every aspect of that business. Yeah, that's a great lesson. I think it's the only way to really grow. Exactly. And um, I, it, it helps you realize you don't need to be focusing in the business, but focusing on the business. And you think you can do it better than somebody else. And that's not the case. Right. <laughs> and you're, you're helping them. You're giving them a job to help their livelihood and their family. And it's just a reciprocal relationship if it's, um, if it's done well, it can be very fruitful from both sides. Yeah, that's awesome. And then lastly, what is your number one key to success? My number one key to success, I think, is just being almost stubborn or have, have the grit to continue. I feel like every aspect of my real estate journey maybe I won't say every aspect, but there's been a lot of times in my real estate journey where I could have easily given up. Like um, the first single family house I bought, the contractor went in before we closed and started ripping it up. And I found out there's a lot of foundation issues that I was going to actually pull out of the contract. And then I found out that he had already went in and started doing it. So I was stuck <laughs> or it could have been a lawsuit. Um, underwriting, I don't know how many deals for two years without seeing anything. I think a lot of people would would given up. And um, if you use that stubbornness in positive ways to ignite your flame or fire to to do well, I I think it, stubbornness can be a great um, personality trait. I know a lot of people look at it as a negative, but sometimes in business you have to be stubborn. You have to um, just do things 
that other people won't, or you have to work significantly more than other people to get an advantage, especially starting out early on when nobody knows who you are, you don't have a track record and you can't prove anything. Right. Yeah. And I think stubbornness or, or maybe the more positive spin is like perseverance, right? Yeah, I think exactly. that, uh, that it's a, a fantastic trade and, and, and elite has led to a lot of your success. I'm sure it sounds like, and it's that ne never give up attitude and you can't, you're constantly learning and, and improving as you go. That, that's great. Yeah. Um, I, I love your perspective on perseverance. That's, that's the much better. <laughs> But, well, you know, I asked that question on, on every episode and, and a lot of people have said a lot of like perseverance has, has been a, a very common theme uh, among folks uh, that have been successful. You know, what's their key? It's been that perseverance or, hey, that's the stubbornness, too. Right. You just say, damn it, I'm going to do it. It's like, you're not going to stop me. <laughs> yeah. And maybe this is one A and I'm sure depending on my mood, it could be or maybe one B or one A. But like I've surrounded myself with some phenomenal people over my career. And a lot of people talk about real estate being a team sport. And I don't know if I really like that mantra, but or mantra, but it, it is important to surround yourself with great people. And that can help you that have personality or skill traits that are a little bit different than yours that can complement you. And um I've been in multiple industries before real estate and it was very cutthroat and I felt like the knowledge sharing and the willingness to work together was non-existent and that's definitely not the case with real estate and maybe it's because the companies I worked for were fortune 100, 500 companies, but now real estate investors are kind of one-offs or they have a small team, but I love the um, just the teamwork environment and atmosphere that comes through real estate investing. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. I completely agree with you. And well, great, Sam. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, before I let you go, if folks want to learn more about you or, or what you're doing, how can they get a hold of you? Yes. Well, Kent, thank you again for having me on the show. And you can reach out to me on my website at BatesCapitalGroup.com or um, through most social media channels or um, my cell phone's 972-855-7654. Awesome, and we'll include all that in the show notes so everybody can can hit you up on your cell phone. All right, awesome. Sam, thank, thank you so much for coming on the show again and have a great rest of the day. Thank you, you too. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit KentRitter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.